Thank you so much, worship team, and uh, great to be uh, here with you again this morning. Well, welcome to uh, part two of a five-part series that we're calling Bigger. And the reason we're in this series called Bigger is that because we believe that if you catch anybody in the best moments of their life, especially in the new year, they're going to be able to clarify a future that is bigger and better than the one that they're currently in. And whether that's a hope for a bigger paycheck, bigger faith, bigger hopes and dreams, bigger career, bigger house, bigger car, whatever it might be, that there's something in each one of us that wants our future to be bigger and better than our present and certainly than our past. And what I said last week is that every vision of bigger is also built on a set of assumptions. And those assumptions are sometimes not verbalized. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they are not. To flesh this out, I remember when I was dating Jen back in the day, and I came to that point where our dating uh, world had gotten uh, pushed to the point where we were talking marriage, all right? And if any of you are married and you know the talk, if you're a a gentleman, you um, most likely would have asked for a hand in marriage or asked for a blessing or at least had the convo with the future father-in-law and said, hey, can I, you know, marry your daughter? So I remember that moment for me, thinking about that time, I'm going to go sit down with my future, hopefully, right, hopefully, future father-in-law and mother-in-law and say, listen, I love your daughter, and I'd love the opportunity to marry her. And so I'm anticipating, I'm assuming some things about how that conversation will go, and I'm trying to get all the answers down about how in the world are you going to support my daughter, which seems to be the primary question that at least in the movies or wherever they are, that this seems to be the primary concern that a father would have. Like, I'm going to give my daughter to you to marry, like, I'd, you know, prefer you keep her alive for most of her life, you know, I mean, roof over her head, you know, warm place to stay and all that. So I am kind of rehearsing my answers to these questions, which never actually came. And so then I brought it up. I'm like, listen, hey, I don't know how I'm going to support her. I mean, I don't know what we're going to do. We have some ideas. And they're like, hey, that, that's okay. Like, it's going to come together. Like, relax a, a little bit. Because every worldview, everything bigger is built on some assumptions, and my assumptions were wrong. My assumption was, this is what my in-laws are going to expect or want to know. And I missed it. They didn't care about that. They cared about other things. They'd already seen my interest in their daughter. It was a genuine, heartfelt love for her, and so they were fine. I was the nervous one. But every vision of bigger and better is built on assumptions, sometimes verbalized and sometimes not. And those assumptions, especially if not verbalized, can get us into trouble. Now, I said last week that we all have assumptions. We all have assumptions about God, ourselves, others, how we should use our influence, and how we should see our future success. And so last week we talked about this assumption about God and how we connect with him. And one of the things I said last week, and the, the primary thing I said last week, is our assumption about God I wanted to try to just simply drive home the point that God is our Father. Like of all things in the world, of all the ways to see God, seeing God as our heavenly dad, Abba, through Jesus' prayer in the New Testament was a profound, profound thought that sometimes we don't get, right? So we want to talk that way. This week, we want to talk about how we see ourselves. And so I want to ask you a question, and it's a big question, but it's a short question, and simply this question. Who are you? Not how are you, who are you? Who are you? Now, it's such a big question, it's really hard to answer. And so I began to think of it in another term, that is this, what makes you who you are? 
who are you? I don't know who I am. Am I Tim? Am I a pastor? Am I uh, a 40-year-old? Am I uh, a dad of three? Am I a guy who lives in Gap? Am I from my parents' upbringing? Like, who am I? I don't know who I am. That's a really hard question to answer. Now, what makes me who I am is a little bit easier to begin to get my mind around. Um, psychologists will say that there's a couple things that contribute to our our up- upbringing and who we are, and they'll say it could be, you could look at it this way, you know, your grandparents um, impact who you are, Um, you know, in other words, your genes. You ever hear it said, especially around Lancaster County, um, oh, he's just a, now I'm going to pick on some family names, don't take this personally, please, oh, he's just a biler, that's the way they react, yeah, need I go on, right? He's just a Martin, he's just an E.B., he's just a Stoltzfus, he's just a what other other name you want, right? He's just a Rogers, that's how they react. Like, we're all in that camp, but that's the view of who we are is genetic. Like, you've been handed certain genes as a Byler or a Rogers or a whatever, and that's like, it's almost like it's fate, that you will have a short temper, or you will have a compassionate heart, or that you will be frugal with your money, or that you will be highly relational. Like, it's just who you are, because that's your name, right? Is that how you're made up? Others will say it's your parents. It's actually, you are a composite of who your, your parents are. Like, your parents, whether they were present or absent or abusive or caring, like, they've shaped you primarily to be who you are. And so you are just, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's not just grandparents, it's parents. Others will say, nah, it's actually experience. Like it's the things that shaped you when you were younger. It's actually your boss right now. It's national policies right now. It's things that you're experiencing outside of your family or whatever that really are shaping who you are. And so what is it that makes you who you are? And in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey makes a, uses a great illustration to help us understand some faulty ways of thinking. And he, he gives the image of someone walking through a funny house at a carnival with warped and twisted mirrors. Have you ever seen uh, that environment? You can imagine walking through that. And he might make the case that uh, one of the things, one of the ways that we tend to see ourselves is we try to figure out who in the world we are. You can imagine walking through a funny house with you look over here at yourself and you're tall and skinny. Over here you're short and fat. Over here your head is this wide and over here you've got this elongated face over here, right? Instagram filters can do that for us now, by the way. But Back in the day, it was simply funny house mirrors. You could look and see. And the question becomes, as I walk through this life, as I walk through these reflections of me all over the place, and I see my grandparents shaped me this way, that, that's that mirror. This mirror says my parents did it to me this way. This mirror says my experience shapes me this way. And then don't forget the critic, by the way, who says I'm not good enough at this or not good enough at that. Don't forget that mirror that we reflect on as well. Or the people that I wish I was like, don't forget that mirror of self-reflection. As I look all around in this funny house, we can kind of become the composite of all these warped views of ourselves. Which makes us, if you've ever been in a funny house or house of mirrors, it makes you feel very lost indeed. Because it's very difficult to see with clarity who in the world you actually are. And here's the problem with that. Wherever you go, there you are. Right? Wherever you go, there you are. And you have seen, if you've lived long enough, and I have seen, since I've lived apparently at least a little bit long enough, to know that people try to solve problems that are deep within themselves by moving from one job to the next, or one church to the next, or one relationship to the next, or one school to the next. The problem is wherever they go, 
there they are. The problem isn't them, but the problem is figuring out in this confusing world of mirrors who in the world I actually am. And if I can't figure that out, I'm going to be in a world of hurt. And this morning, I want to get under this with you and try to bring some clarity to who in the world you actually might be and how it is that we might be able to bring some clarity to these warped views of who we are that sometimes we live with without putting language to them. Last week we covered one prayer in the Bible, a great prayer called the Lord's Prayer. This week, again, I want to go through a prayer with you. And the gift of this to us is that the person who wrote this prayer was going through an incredibly, incredibly soul-searching time, walking through a house of mirrors in his own right, in which this moment in his life could absolutely be defining for him, would absolutely rock any one of us. What this man went through before he wrote this poem, which is also a prayer, would honestly have landed any one of us in prison, if not given us the electric chair or some form of capital punishment for what he has done. And he writes a prayer in the middle of this moment, in the middle of soul searching, trying to figure out who in the world I am before a good, good father. Who in the world I am and how I should see myself in the middle of all the pain and warped views of my life and my future. And it's a gift to us to see how he processed and what we can learn as we walk through our lives. So, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Psalms. And in the book of Psalms, there's a psalm right in, kind of in the middle of it, maybe in the early third of it, Psalm 51. Psalm 51, by the way, if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew around you. We want to give that to you today if you don't own it. But Psalm 51 uh, is going to be found right kind of in the smack dab middle of your Bible. And Psalm 51 was written by David, King David, we call him at the time. And King David at the time basically was going through some real hard time, brought on mostly by himself. And if you know any of the story, you know that David, uh, almost a year prior to writing this psalm, so check this, imagine this, uh, about a year ago before he wrote this psalm, David decided to go up to the rooftop of his palace overlooking Jerusalem, looking around to see what God had put him in charge of. And if you know the story, he saw a woman, Bathsheba, bathing on the rooftop across the way. Had to have her, sent for her, slept with her. She reported back, hey, sorry, I have a kid now. To which she said, okay, I'm going to bring Uriah, your husband, who is fighting my battle for me. I'm going to bring him back to Jerusalem. Hopefully he'll sleep with you and I can kind of wipe that off and that could look like his kid even though it's mine. Uriah does not do that because he's too honorable. He won't go back to his home while his men are fighting. So he stays outside of the door that night, to which David gets him drunk the next day, hoping that he can lower his defenses. Even getting drunk, Uriah's integrity is still too high to be broken. He will not go in with his wife when his men are in battle. And so David sends the word, put Uriah at the front of the line and attack a suicide mission, to which Uriah dies. David signs his death warrant. David is now not only an adulterer, and some might argue a rapist, but also certainly a murderer. And this is why I say any one of these things that David did would have landed any one of us in jail, if not in the electric chair. Sometime later, the prophet Nathan comes to David, confronts him with what he has done, to which David begins to break. 
And in that moment of brokenness, David writes this Psalm 51, in which his soul and his heart has been tortured for a long time. And here's the issue at stake here. Imagine if this is you. Is this not, is this not a life and legacy-defining moment? Can you imagine someone in your own family who's a murderer and an adulterer like this? Do you know how long, you know how long that scarlet letter stays with you? Do you know how long that decision to do not only not only adultery, but also to cover it and then and then to have someone murdered? Do you have any idea? Like that is a generational defining moment for David and for his family. And then he writes, in the middle of all of that, as he's trying to look at the mirror and figure out, who am I? He writes Psalm 51. And here's what he says as he opens up. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions and wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Look at how he sees God at the very beginning of this. He's like, have mercy on me. According to your, in, this, in the Hebrew is this word called chesed. Um, let's do some Hebrew this morning. Let's get audience participation. You guys ready to give me a little bit of Hebrew response? We're going to do chesed. It's H-E-S-E-D, but that H is like a hard C-H. It's a guttural, almost like spit on the person in front of you. Chesed, all right? So this is what he's saying. According to your unfailing love, chesed. Let's say that together. Ready? Chesed. One more time, just for the fun of it, because this is fun, by the way. Ready? Chesed. All right. This is unfailing love. This is the covenant love of God. And that chesed word is a powerful, packed word in the Old Testament that just covers this is the nature of God. He is, provides chesed love, and that's what he does. And so David is appealing to this faithful, covenant-keeping love. When God says something, he'll do it. Okay. And so according to your chesed, unfailing love, according to your great compassion. See how David begins. See how he sees God as someone who's faithful and compassionate, that he will never, never, please don't miss this, at the beginning, no matter what David has done, and no matter what you have done, and no matter what I have done, David appeals to him according to your unfailing chesed, according to your great compassion, which David is going to believe extends past his failures. Then he says three things. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Blot, wash, cleanse. You can see what he wants. He wants God to clean him. And then he says, verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Look what David has just said in verses 3 to 6. Again in verse 3. He says, I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. I just want to make one small point and move on. In other words, what I see here is David is recognizing there is sin directly before me, and I see it, and it's right here. But he's not necessarily going back and saying, God, I want to uncover and play the record back. I want to, I want to play that track again of something that happened 25 years ago when I think you forgave me, but I'm not sure. So I'm just going to keep playing that track over and over and over again. It's not right in front of me, but it's in the past. 
what I see with David is someone who's like, this sin is right here, it's in front, hasn't been dealt with yet, let's deal with that one. There's a danger of becoming too introspective where we uncover things we shouldn't uncover in the process of confession before God. There's a danger of saying, you know what, I need to not cover, not only cover what's right in front, but you know, when I was three years old, when I was 14, when I was 26, when I was 38, and now you're 60, 80, 90, whatever. This isn't an interest of, let me dig into all the things that could ever possibly be wrong and just see myself as such a terrible person. This is David saying, this is right, God, this is right in front of me. This is the stuff that just comes off the tongue, off the heart, not been dealt with, boom, this is the stuff right in front of me. That's a healthy response to confession. This is stuff right in front of me. I see it here. My sin's before me. And then he says, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I don't think he's telling the truth here, if you want to take this literally. I don't think this is right. Think about it. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. But hasn't he also sinned against Uriah? Hasn't he also sinned against Bathsheba? Like, yeah. You, you sure have. Haven't you also sinned against the people of, of Israel that you're supposed to lead? Like, yeah. Haven't you also asked people to lie on your behalf to cover this stuff with Bathsheba? Yeah. So you haven't only sinned against God, but this is what he writes. Why? It's hyperbole. It's a poem. It's meant to make a point by emphasizing it above what it should be. So some of your translations may say, against you and you especially have I sinned. Like, you uniquely have I sinned, because God, you uniquely are the one. But Sin like this is not only before God, but it is also before man. Both will need to be corrected at some point. But David is making, using hyperbole to make his point, man, this is big God, and against you especially, I need to recognize it. It's not just the people around me, but man, I have sinned, God, against you. And then he goes on, so he says, surely, verse 5, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Again, I think he's using hyperbole, trying to say that inside, in the core of who I am, there's something in there that has to be sinful. And then he uses verse 6 to explain a, a conflict. Like, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. And there's, the problem is there's not space for both. Like, if there's sin inside my heart from birth, and you want truth in there, like, there isn't room in that little space for both. You want truth, and I have sin. So what do I do? And we have a problem. There's not space for both of them. And so what does David do? Does he just say, you know what? I know you want that, but God, I'm sinful from birth. It's inevitable. I'm always going to be a Rogers. I'm always going to have this heritage. I'm always going to be like this. Or does he say, God, if you want truth, I'm going to need your help getting that in here. See, he turns toward hope, even in the middle of recognizing he has sinned deep inside of him. He turns toward hope. Look what he does next in verse uh, 7 there. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Like he turns toward hope. He doesn't turn toward inevitability. He doesn't say, man, God, I guess that that truth that you want isn't going to find room in here. He's like, "I, I want you to come in and cleanse me. And then he says, I will be clean. Look at that confidence in that. Don't miss that. Like, you're going to do this if you decide, God, to move. If you decide to act, if you are unfailing in your love and your chesed, if you're unfailing that, you're going to do this and I will be clean. No question about it. I will be clean. And then he says, look at verse 7 again. 
wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. And then let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Is this language of cleanse, wash, blot sounding familiar because he just used it at the beginning. He's appealing to it again. God, blot this out. Wash me. Cleanse me. And then he says in verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's saying again, God, you are going to be the one to bring a change in my heart. You can bring this truth in and push out the sin that is right there. There isn't space for both long-term, but God, I'm asking you, I'm hoping, I'm asking, will you please do this and believing that you will do this. And then, if you do this, here's what David is kind of just reacting to. Like, he's almost imagining a future and kind of picturing himself being cleansed. And you can imagine, if you've ever done something wrong, you know you've not dealt with it for a long time, almost up to a year. And imagine the depth of what David has done. In this prayer, it's almost like David is imagining the, the weight lifted off his shoulders, the freedom that comes from guilt and shame. And you can imagine what you would do in this case if all was in public and you finally had a chance to get this thing off of you you would tell people. like This would be news of God's goodness and favor on you. And this is what David does next. He says, then I'll teach transgressors your ways. Like, use my life as an example. Sinners will turn back to you because you've been so good to me. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Like he's living in a future moment where he thinks God will do this for him because he's anticipating that God will be good because he's a compassionate father who's unfailing in his love. And then the next two verses, next two verses, are really what I want you to see and not miss this morning because they are so critical to getting a clear picture of who in the world we are. He says in verse 16, we're going to take them one at a time. He says in verse 16, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. See, where David goes next in his thinking, he's like, God, there's going to be a time where you're going to do this. And so the question is, how do I get there? How do I get to this land that I've just expressed, this place where I'm going to be free from this? I get to tell people and show people and people can look through my life and be like, man, I'm free, I'm free, I'm clear, like God has been so good to me. How do I get there. And then he begins to think, well, maybe I could offer a sacrifice. And if I offer a sacrifice, like God will be almost inclined to forgive me. Like, that must be what I have to do. And then he immediately corrects the thinking in verse 16. And he says, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. But honestly, like that's not true. In this time period, David is writing and the nation of Israel is under what they call the Mosaic Covenant. At the time, Moses, you may have heard about him. Moses made a covenant with God, or more rightly, God made a covenant with Moses. And that's a covenant in the Old Testament nation of Israel in which when you obey, you're blessed, and when you disobey, you're cursed. And one of the primary ways that you relate to God through the Mosaic Covenant is sacrifices. In fact, the nation of Israel was required to offer sacrifices. And God essentially delighted in them obeying. And so this verse does not make any sense when you look at it in that sense at all. Like, you don't delight in sacrifices? Well, of course you do, God. Like, you've set up this relationship. This verse doesn't make any sense on the one hand. Now, I brought an object lesson along for our viewing pleasure this morning. If you're sitting too far back, you may not be able to see text here, all right? Can you see how far back can we see this thing? Can it... 
Chris, I know you're like 100 years old. Can you see that? No? All right. Here, here we go. This is a, a Texas Longhorn, a real Texas Longhorn that I got on one of my trips to Dallas when I was going through school. Came back and brought this home for one of my kids years ago. All right. So this is, believe it or not, I'd throw it back to you. I'm afraid I'd knock someone's glasses off or something like that. But this is my Texas Longhorn that I got. All right. And uh, so imagine for a minute that I was in the world when I'm sacrificing to God and I have to sacrifice a bull, or in this case, my poor little longhorn has to be sacrificed in order to earn favor with God because this is part of the Mosaic Covenant. Let's say that I raise this longhorn on my little property that I have and we gave birth to a little longhorn and this longhorn was, you know, raised. I took care of it. I fed it, um, groomed it. I don't know. You groom a longhorn. I don't know what you do. Anyway, so the longhorn gets to big enough to the point where the sacrifice is time to sacrifice. And so here's what happens. And here's what's happening in the nation of Israel. They're taking their animals. They, they take the longhorn to the altar and put it on the altar and sacrifice the animal to God. The point of this is supposed to be, and what I'm supposed to get out of this is, I'm forgiven and I'm saved from my sin because of something outside of myself. The message is supposed to be, Tim, you did not do anything to earn your salvation. Your longhorn did it for you. Okay, as silly as that might be. That's the message that I'm supposed to receive when I sacrifice the longhorn that has been part of my quote-unquote family for years. I put it out there, it cost me something, and I'm supposed to see, you didn't do anything, Tim. It's a sacrifice. But here's the other message that I could get, and here's what David is saying. Because I raised this, because I fed it, I took care of it. I took it to the vet when it had a problem. I made sure it had its tags. I made sure to put a fence up. I repaired. I healed. I fixed. I fed. I raised. I deserve the forgiveness that I'm getting from you. And that's why David says, no. If you wanted that kind of sacrifice, I'd bring it. You don't. Don't bring me your work. Don't bring me a relationship where you're going to exchange something for the forgiveness that you want. That's why David says no. Those sacrifices, no. You don't, you don't like those at all. You don't even want those at all. You can't bring me a longhorn and expect that I'm going to forgive you. Like That isn't how it works. This is meant to remind you that your salvation comes from outside of yourself not because of what you've done. And that's what David says next. The sacrifice that God really wants. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David turns it inward. And he says, the brokenness of your heart The brokenness of your spirit before God is what God wants. He doesn't want a relationship of exchange. I can't exchange my work. I can't exchange my penance to God and say, God, listen, I know I blew it, and my family's always been kind of a jerk in this way, and I've always kind of leaned into that because it's just been easy to do. Hey, how about for $29.95 plus shipping and handling, we deal with forgiveness. You think that will work? What do you want? $199.95? Hey, do you want like... Hey, we can do like a 30-year bank payment if it's bigger than that. I mean, whatever you need. Like we can, I can earn, right? 
If I pay enough, if I'm sorry enough, if I write enough, if I cry enough tears, if I do whatever I do, maybe like I can get that. And David says, just stop that. Stop that. Don't bring the stuff that you've raised. Think that God's going to give you favor because you've raised it. The broken and contrite spirit before God is what he desires. Here's the question I have. What in the world does it mean to be broken? What in the world? What in the world does it mean to be broken? What in the world does it mean to be broken? When you ask the question, who are you? And I ask, what are you even made of? I'm going to suggest to you that brokenness before God is one of the most important things that we can lean on to bring clarity to who we are. And so what in the world does it mean to be broken? Because here's what happens in our world. This language of brokenness is inane or insane. It does not fit our cultural values. In our world, broken things get thrown away, don't they? We're not generally a culture of repairing things overall. We do some things. But overall, when, come on, you know this, right? When something's broken, then we chuck it, right? And so who wants to aspire toward brokenness? Where's the last uh, leadership book you've read Some will say this, but many will not, in which they say, hey, listen, the way to the top is brokenness, baby. Like, this doesn't happen, right? Like, this is not the messages that we get, is it? It isn't. So here's here's the question, right? So if this is the reality, right, if this is the reality, in our world, broken things get thrown away, what if, what if, what if? Is it possible that brokenness might actually lead to fullness? Is it possible that brokenness might actually lead to fullness? To answer that question, let me ask you this one. Why do you think people, parents, moms and dads, still name their kids David today? It's because of King David. Now maybe it's a family name as well. People still name their children David and it's a good name. It's a good name. But come on, what did David just do? <laughs> he committed a, adultery? He lied to his people and to his court? Misled the entire nation of Israel? Wasn't going to change until God totally confronted him. And then he had a man murdered. Are you kidding me? And what is his legacy? You and I still think highly of the name David because of King David. What if brokenness actually leads to fullness. To the fullness that you and I actually really want. Here's what we say about brokenness. Here's how I see it. That everyone, everyone submits their will to someone or something, and David chose to break his will to God's. Everyone, everyone, you and I, we all submit our will to someone or something, and David chose to break his will to God's. I'm at the mercy of my Father. I'm at the mercy of a good and compassionate God who has promised His faithfulness and His favor. That's where I am. And God has delivered him and led him. And everyone submits to someone or something. David chose to break his will to God's. Back to Stephen Covey for a second. Stephen Covey made this comment in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He also said this, that between stimulus and response, man has the freedom to choose. Between stimulus and response, man has the freedom to choose. What that means is this. If your upbringing is your stimulus, 
your parents were absent, they were present, they were nurturing, they were jerks, whatever it is, your stimulus, between how you were raised, between events that happened to you, things happened at school that went bad, things happened at home that went bad, whatever it is, whatever the stimulus was that came in and impacted you, between that stimulus and how you respond to it, you have the freedom right in this space to choose what that response is going to be. You do, and I do. We do. We have the opportunity to choose how am I going to respond to the things that have shaped me and changed my life. We get that opportunity. And David chose. David chose. This is a stimulus. These are things. These are experiences. These are habits. These are things that have shaped me. And I'm going to choose a response in which my will is going to be broken to God's. And it changed him and shaped him. And it left a legacy for David in which you and I still name our children. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to wrap it up here in a second. Whatever you're building your version of bigger on, you can build it on the truth that should you choose brokenness toward God, you'll be choosing fullness of life. That whatever you're building your version of bigger on, in terms of how you see yourself, as you walk through this crazy world of mirrors, warping a view of you and trying to figure out who in the world you are, that should you choose should you choose brokenness before God, you actually will be choosing fullness of life. To walk into God's presence every day, every season, every moment, in every relationship, and every work responsibility, and everything at school, say, God, like Jesus said on the cross, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Paul wrote in the book of 2 Corinthians, he said that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. It's actually through the cracks in our life that God's power is shown through us. And I would argue that's exactly what happened to David. It's through his weakness, through his failures, massive failures, that God's power is shown so that you and I still respect David despite all that he has done. So listen, look here for a second. If you're coming into 2018 with a warped view of yourself because of your parents, your family, your history, your failure, whatever it might be, whatever it might be, listen. David's story tells us that that past does not need to define your future. Not when brokenness is in play, and not when you can submit your spirit and will and heart to God and have your will broken before God and say, God, your will be done. And believe that he is a God who forgives, who is faithful and loving no matter what. So my encouragement to you, pray Psalm 51. Learn from it. See the God of the universe the way that David did. And then, and then, and then. Be as bold as you can ever imagine, please. Do not live out in the shadow of your failure because David didn't. He was bold for God. And please, 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 be as bold for God as you can ever muster even though your past might stay. Because you are not just a compilation of the warped images of your past or of the people around you. You are someone who is made in the image of a good, good father. And when our will is broken to his, our future is a future of fullness, no matter what. Next week, I want to give to you another prayer that you can pray for people around you who you love the most that I hope will be an encouragement and a strength for you and for them. Will you pray with me this morning?
Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in this psalm this morning and to see again how it is that you move in people who have really blown it and have lost it and have done some ridiculous things. I pray that you'd help us this morning not to shake loose of this truth that we see in David that while he blew it and while things were incredibly terrible for him and the things that he has done, the way that he acted and the abuse that he caused and all of this stuff, that the end of the day through both his brokenness to you and your forgiveness of him, his legacy is a strong legacy. We'll name our kids David because you forgave and he stepped into that forgiveness with boldness acted and led and served you with fervor and with passion. And so I pray that you would help us as we try to figure out who in the world we are. How do we work at school? Who am I in my future? What am I going to be when I grow up? How should I relate in dating relationships or my marriage or in my relationship with my bosses? We try to figure all of that out. God, give us the courage to break our will to yours, to submit to you in every area of our life and regularly ask you, God, what is it that you would want me to do? What is the loving thing that I can do here? And how can I serve both you and my neighbor with abandon? Lord, we need you. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. We need you in every moment. We ask you to give us courage to do what we know we need to do with the things that we have heard this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.